request uh, she ashutosh yes he has already switched on his video so let me quickly um, read uh, something about ashutosh uh, singh thakur so ashutosh is the founding director of madhya pradesh young thinkers forum and he is a recipient of the national youth leadership award he did his ma in applied hindi from banaras hindu university and bachelor of planning uh, from uh, nit bhopal he is currently assistant program officer acharya shankar sanskritik ekta nyas department of culture government of uh, madhya pradesh uh, i now welcome ashutosh singh thakur ji to start his session uh, the this session is about uh, uh, recent history and the various and controversies and issues related to india's and you know the encounter of hindus uh, with other civilizations thank you very much please uh, go ahead thank you thank you so much shrinivas ji uh, for such a kind introduction uh, pranams to dr ayalst uh, first of all i would like to thank dr ayalst and indic academy for giving me this wonderful opportunity to interact with and uh, interviewing such a great personality whose works have shaped the mind of uh, thousands of young seekers like me so thank you so much coming to today's uh, topic dr elst you have written uh, extensively on contemporary problems and challenges faced by hindu society tracing their roots in history particularly medieval and modern you have always focused on fundamental issues such as the practice of negationism in indian history psychology of prophetism critical analysis of gandhi's ideas and the role of islamic theology in the destruction of hindu temples these works have educated hindu society in the last three decades i will be taking up questions relating to these ideas in today's interaction so first uh, i would like to be, uh, begin with asking on the intriguing title you have selected for your work on sitaram ji titled titled as sitaram goel india's only communalist so in an age where everyone is uh, competing with each other to prove themselves as secularist why are you calling sitaram ji as communalist well i, I didn't invent that he himself did you see in, in somewhat adversarial company he would introduce himself i am a hindu communalist which was a very good thing to do because indeed very many people try to you uh, know try to get away from this label of communalist by saying no no we are the true secularists we are positive secularists and um so he didn't play that game because that way you, you still play by the rules set by the enemy and by enemy i don't mean to say i will treat them as an enemy no but they treat us like enemies they are self declared enemies right otherwise they're just people like us now uh it's uh, i mean any in in the case of india of course the word secularism uh doesn't mean what it really means I mean, in Europe, where it originated, secularism means a separation of church and state, uh, which in practice means that the law system is completely neutral regarding your religion. Uh, the Pakistani constitution discriminates against the minorities, 
says explicitly, for example, that the president can only be a Muslim. And so that's only the tip of the iceberg of all the inequalities. So in a real secular state, you get a neutrality vis-a-vis -vis religion. Now, in India, the secularists uh, is a category that comprises the Christian missionaries who call themselves secular before Indian audiences, the uh, Muslim fundamentalists, you know, their Arab colleagues would abhor the category of secularism as an ugly, vicious Western implication. And in India, by contrast, they all call themselves secular. Why? Because the word has acquired a different meaning. It simply means anti-Hindu. Then there are, of course, many silly born Hindus who also call themselves secular. Uh, even they will, for example, support the inequalities in the Indian constitution at the detriment of the Hindus. They will actually defend when put on the spot. You see, usually they simply look away from this. They try to ignore and make you ignore the fact that there are anti-Hindus. But when at all they have to defend this, they will say, yeah, but that's necessary because the Hindus as a majority, you know, have to look after the feelings of the minorities, have to make up for the inherent disadvantages of being a minority. Now, in Hindu states, there is no inherent disadvantage of being a minority. You see, no matter how deep you look into history, all the discriminations imposed by Muslim and Christian rulers on the Hindus are not reciprocated by the Hindus. Aurangzeb destroyed uh, Hindu temples. Uh, his troops raped many Hindu women. Now, when Shivaji reacted against him, he forbade, he prohibited the destruction of mosques and the rape of Muslim women. So uh, to say that um, majorities have to compensate for being a majority, that is understandable, for instance, in the context of America, where whites as a race um, have for a while practiced racial slavery upon an imported black minority and so there, you know, you can argue about whether what they do today, like race-based reservations, whether that is a good solution or not. But you can't argue about the historical fact that whites have imposed slavery on blacks. And so therefrom comes the idea that the majority owes the minority something. Now that does not apply to India at all. If you want to justify inequality as a form of compensation, then of course, the compensation has to be paid by Christians and Muslims. Now, I, I don't advocate that. Let's be clear about it. I think in terms of the law, a simple secular arrangement is the best.
You see, the law should completely ignore the religion of its citizens, which of course, you know, as a principle, everybody would say, oh yeah, yeah, that's a good idea. But in practice, it means, uh, it means for instance, a common civil code. And in practice, it means the abolition of the notion of minority. You see, statisticians <coughs> can in their work, you know, discern that a certain number below 50% is a minority. But in legal terms, it should simply not exist. It should not be present in the laws or the constitution of India. You know, every Muslim citizen has exactly the same rights as every Hindu citizen. They should not have special rights because they are Muslims. Okay, uh, interesting. So now uh, I would like to ask uh, something which has a bearing on contemporary happenings like uh, the one we are witnessing in France. Uh, Voice of India exposed the true nature of uh, prophetic uh, uh, ideologies by revealing the jihad which is there in the theory as well as in the practice. But still we read the Marxist historians in our history textbooks saying that Islamic uh, rule was an era of uh, composite culture and you call it negationism. So uh, I would like to ask you, can Islamic occupation and uh, the subsequent massacre be characterized as a genocide? Yeah, well, that's a, that's a good question. Um, short answer is no. Because there have, of course, been a number of massacres of Hindus by Muslims of genocidal proportions. Like what happened during my lifetime, even um, in 1971 in East Bengal, that was a genocide. The Hindus were systematically targeted for murder. Um, killing about 80% of those who were killed. And mind you, even among the 20% Muslims who were killed, they too were killed for anti-Hindu reasons. Because you see the Bengali Muslims as opposed to the Punjabi Muslims did not dress like Muslims. You know, they were not recognizable as such. They didn't, they didn't wear burqas uh, and so on. They didn't, uh, Arabicize their language. So to the Pakistani Muslims, these Bangladeshis looked like Hindus. And, you know, because they were not sufficiently Islamic, they were also killed. So essentially it targeted the Hindus. And uh, according to official figures, three million have been killed. Maybe it's a bit less, but at any rate, you, you are speaking of at least like two million Hindus killed. Now that's genocidal proportions. And I think within that context, there was a genocidal intention uh, among the Pakistanis and their Jamaati Islami collaborators. And so you have that a few times in history. And so if you add the figures together, you go easily beyond the 6 million of the Holocaust. Now, of course, 
you know, you can't compare in the sense that India is much larger and we're talking about a thousand years of history. Um, but nevertheless, uh, if, you, if you come to that total, you know, it seems justifiable to call it genocide. Nevertheless, I dislike that word because it gives the wrong impression that the Muslim intention was to kill all Hindus. Their real intention is to convert all Hindus. And this is consistent with how Muhammad saw it. Muhammad wanted to be recognized as God's final spokesman. And so at one point in his career, he was even willing to compromise on monotheism. He insisted on monotheism, yet the Arabs uh, at one moment, brief moment, could continue to worship their goddesses, um, Allah, Uzzah and Manat, on condition that they recognized him as the prophet. So Muhammad is more important than Allah in Islam. You know, as the Persian proverb says, you can be funny about Allah, but be careful with Muhammad. And um, so they, uh, they followed in Muhammad's footsteps. And um, what they wanted was that Hindus would convert to Islam. That was their main objective. And so, you know, what, what uh, Muhammad clearly says is that uh, war will reign between us, that is to say between kafirs and Muslims, until you all believe in Allah, until you have all converted to Islam. So to speak about genocide has to do with finality. You know, do they want to kill people? Like for instance, there is a big British responsibility in the famine of Bengal in 1943. Many people call it a genocide, yet it clearly was not a genocide. You know, it was a policy failure that killed many people. When uh, Mao Zedong organized the greatest mass death provoked by humans in 1960-62, the Great Leap Forward, where famine killed maybe 30, 40 million people. He did not have an intention to kill these people. He did not want to exterminate the Chinese nation or the peasant class. No, he simply made a mistake. And these 40 million dead were collateral damage. That's something else than genocide. So I'd be careful with that word. And even if there is purpose killing, uh, which of course did happen many times, uh, it is at a micro level genocide. Like for instance, uh, at one point, um, Timur had conquered Delhi and he had all the Hindu uh, prisoners killed rather than sold as slaves. 
and because in the military situation he was in, that was, you know, for the immediate, the most profitable to do. Um, so at a micro level, you could say, yes, that is genocide. But in general, you see, looking at the intention of the Muslim conquest of India, no, you see, their intention was not to kill the Hindu people, it was to Islamize. Okay. So uh, similarly, uh, as a part of whitewashing the crimes of Islam, these uh, left historians or say uh, Islamic iconoclasm denier like Romila Thapar and Richard Eaton claim that temple destruction is not uh, anything new, but a Hindu practice continued by the Islamists. And another excuse they gave is that Islamic invaders were looting the temples only for the sake of wealth. So my question is, did Islam bring iconoclasm in India? What was the role of Islamic doctrine in iconoclasm? Uh, how true are uh, Richard Eaton's views about the guilt-tripping Hindus for Islamic iconoclasm? And uh, are writers like uh, Audrey Trashke continuing the legacy of uh, Marxist historians? Yes. Well, um, since Christianity was in India before Islam, you might look at Christianity for the first signs of iconoclasm in India, which wasn't there before, but I'll come to that. Um, but Christians came in India as refugees, not as conquerors, and so they immediately adapted. They took their place also in the caste system as a fairly high merchant uh, caste. Um, so they completely adapted. They only became fanatic as soon as the Portuguese arrived. Now, so yes, Islam was the first. So when when Muhammad bin Qasim conquered Sin, he immediately had temples temples destroyed. Now, and then you know you have the rest of the history. I don't need to repeat it about how Somnath, the Somnath temple was destroyed by Muhammad Ghaznavi and the Krishna Zamnabhumi also, how uh, the Krishna Zamnabhumi was again destroyed by Aurangzeb, also destroyed for the second time, the Kashi Vishwanath temple and so on. You know all that history. So yes, tens of thousands of Hindu temples were destroyed by Muslims. Um, now, did they get it from Hindu example? No, they didn't. First of all, when the Muslim conquerors arrived in India, they didn't know anything about the local Hindu traditions. So, you know, if, if in the non-existent history books, there was reference to some Hindu committing iconoclasm, they wouldn't have known. So they didn't um, invoke Hindu precedents. And in fact, within their ideology, they wouldn't have, because they despite everything Hindu. So they based themselves on Islamic precedent. You see, these uh, secularists are hopeless provincialists. You know, they want to take Hindus by the nose and make them look at India and only India. But the world is bigger than that and Islamic history is bigger than that. So before Muslims came in India, they already had a record of iconoclasm in Persia, 
in North Africa, in Spain, and um, and even earlier, the uh, example was set by Muhammad himself, who uh, who destroyed or who had converts destroy their own pagan temples or pagan uh, murtis. And so the important moment is when he conquers Mecca and he goes into the Kaaba together with his nephew Ali. And with their own hands, they destroy the 360 murtis in the Kaaba. And so that is the example that in Muslim sources is always cited to justify iconoclasm. What that has to do with Hindu precedent, so for them, nothing, but you know, for us as historians looking back, you know, we might see that, you know, it's not so uniquely Islamic, Hindus also did it. Now that is not true. There is a tradition among pagan cultures, among polytheist cultures, not just in India, also well attested in Mesopotamia, of conquering a city and then going to the main temple and not destroy it, but lift the main murti from it and take it home. There are a few such cases, only a handful, in Hindu history as well. But there is a big difference. You see, of course, there is a difference in the sense that they didn't destroy the temple, they didn't destroy the murti and so on. That's already a little factual difference that secularists tend to paper over. Uh, but far more important, there is a difference in status between what the two are doing. Muslims destroy temples. If they abduct the Murti, it is only to further humiliate it. Like Mahmoud Ghaznavi had Murtis, you know, mazened into lavatories or on streets where people could step over them. That was not the case here. You see, the Hindus who did this, they took the statue to their own temple, consecrated it, and continued its worship. So if you take the Shiva temple over there and you bring it over here, the Shiva worship continues. Even with the same idol, it's only not there anymore. It is here, but it continues. And over there in their Shiva temple, they can install a new statue and continue the worship. The same priest continues the same worship. Only materially it's different. So. The uh, Islamic iconoclasm is directed against the religion, whereas, you know, whereas the few Hindu cases have nothing to do with destroying the religion, simply with taking pride in taking home a possession belonging to the enemy. So secularists are extremely superficial. You see, if you give them a slip of paper to write down, like say your telephone number, or you give them a dollar bill, they will just not see the difference. For them, these are just two slips of paper. 
Okay, so this uh, mention and discussion on iconoclasm uh, reminds me uh, of the general order by Aurangzeb. 1669, which you also mentioned in one of your book. And uh, now we have writers like uh, Audrey Trusky. So are these writers like Audrey Trusky, they are uh, containing the legacy of uh, Marxist historians? Well, the, the story that um, iconoclasm isn't really Islamic, that it came from the Hindus, to my knowledge, that was invented by uh, Richard Eaton, an American self-described Marxist. But the, the interesting thing is that it was immediately taken over by everyone. Now all the secularists say it. And that's uh, an example to follow. You see, among Hindus, I don't see that at all. You know, like I've argued very many uh, particular historical cases, and I don't see any of that in you know, among Hindu Twitter trolls, let alone among Hindu academics, or very rarely, and maybe now more and more. But so Hindus don't have this tendency. On the contrary, very often they are proud of what they found and are jealous and don't want to give the honor to someone else of also having found something. So, or like, you know, for a more recent example, uh, at some point someone uh, discovered the letter by uh, Vir Savarkar to the British in which he pleaded his own case. And so there he was not speaking as a revolutionary, but he was toadyist. He was like making up with the British. So they say, look, 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 you know, he was not, uh, he was not a patriot. On the contrary, he was a traitor, whereas Nehru, he was a real patriot. Well, no, you see, in his circumstances, you know, what he did was the best he could do. Otherwise, he would have just wasted away in prison. And so to continue the national struggle, he had to get out of there. Um, so that's, you know, the price to pay. However, what is important here is that once this story was launched, immediately the whole secularist bunch took it over. Now it is standard fare in all argumentations against Hinduism. So that's an example to follow. And so there, yes, you see Audrey Trishko, who is not a Marxist, has copied this uh, story from Richard Eaton. Okay. So moving forward, uh, this year, 2020, is mm -hmm. a, a historic year and very significant, uh, not only due to COVID-19, but because uh, it uh, witnessed historic event of Bhumi Pujan of Ayodhya, uh, a milestone in centuries long civilizational battle for Hindu identity and uh, reclamation. Yes. So, who were responsible for untruth about Ayodhya and uh, what is its uh, significance and importance for Hindus? What is the truth about Ayodhya and what is the meaning and significance of Ayodhya for Hindus? Mm. Well, let me first say something about the recent facts. Um, so, the first stone was laid of the Ayodhya Temple on the 5th of August. I want to say something about this, which I think is important. Not directly in answer to your question, I'll come to that. But otherwise, I forget saying this. Okay. Um, 
So some Orthodox Hindus were angry or at any rate dissatisfied that they had chosen this date, the 5th of August, because this was not the astrologically right moment. And so I don't know about astrology, but I do notice that among Orthodox Hindus in this context, they would take astrology into account. And namely a very simple rule that something meant to grow and to prosper should be started under a waxing moon. So between the new moon and the full moon, but not after the full moon. And um, an astrologer consulted for laying the first stone had given four dates, three of them with a waxing moon one of them, this 5th of August, with a waning moon. So all the astrologers and all the Orthodox Hindus said, this is the wrong date. You should have picked one with the waxing moon. Um, now, again, you see, this is something I personally don't really care about. But if you're going to play the game of Hindu ritualism, I mean, building a temple, you know, erecting a, a murti and so on has certain rules. And I don't know what these rules are worth, but they are the rules. And maybe they should be changed in tempore non suspecto. But right now, you know, let's just follow those rules. Um, so that should have been done. And um, why was 5th of August chosen? Well, very apparently, because it's the first anniversary of the normalization of Kashmir, the day when uh, the government, uh, not really abolished, but made dysfunctional, um, the uh, Article 370. So to celebrate that, you know, they wanted the, the first stone being laid on precisely that date. And it's a mistake. Um, it has a precedent, namely, the creation of India, of the Indian Republic. That was also on the 15th of August on the waning moon. And so all the astrologers at that time said, this is a bad day. Why was it chosen? Again, because it was an anniversary. It was the second anniversary of the capitulation of Japan into the hands of Douglas MacArthur for America and someone for Britain, namely Lord Louis Mountbatten. And he was the last Viceroy of England. And so he insisted on making the 15th of August Independence Day against the wishes of native Indians. So I think it's a very bad habit of politicians glorifying themselves by imposing these anniversaries, these events uh, important to their own career. But in this case, even an imposition on India, which was becoming independent of all things, which should not have looked at a, a foreign dignitary for choosing this date. So, I mean, I think that is meddlesome. And then that has to do with the ego of certain BJP politicians. So that's uh, 
a little sour note in this otherwise historical event. Now to answer your question. So uh, what is the greater meaning of this? Well, it ought to be a sign of Hindu revival after centuries of Muslim oppression. And indeed, you see, I think most of us feel that this is what it is. However, the BJP downplays this dimension. They want to give as little attention as possible to the um, anti-Islamic element, to the emancipation from Islamic rule element. Uh, because having absorbed so much of secularist propaganda, they think that it is anti-Muslim, that it you know, hurts the feelings of contemporary Muslim fellow citizens. If you uh, give attention to this painful history of Islamic oppression. Well, that's not true. I have nothing against contemporary Muslims. And I think that even counts for most of the people in the Ayodhya movement. But the facts are the facts that this is what happened in history. And it is time that Hindus emancipate themselves from that. So rather than seeing Ayodhya as a toy with which the BJP can, you know, wage its uh, election campaign and so on, um, it should be seen for what it really is. It's, it's, it is indeed a great civilizational event. You know, that, that can't be taken away anymore in spite of the fact that the people who are right now making it possible don't live up to that larger vision. Okay. Uh, thank you, Dr. Elst. Uh, moving forward to the next question. There has been uh, much confusion among Hindus regarding the legacy of uh, Mahatma Gandhi. Uh, and as you have written very important work on the subject titled Gandhi and Godse, I would like to know from you about the Hindu critique of uh, Mahatma Gandhi. What remains good in Gandhi? Yeah. Well, much of what we associate Gandhi with is simply Hindu. Like he was a, he was a vegetarian, for example. Much of the things that Westerners consider funny about him are simply Hindu. Um, his extreme hygiene, for example. Um, also, his family relations, the way like he was a tyrant, house father, you know, that was typical for Hindu families back then, but equally for Western families back then. Um, but some things that have become associated with Hinduism through Gandhi are in fact peculiarities of Gandhi himself, like his view of nonviolence. You see, in, in Gujarat, um, he had, you know, a very prominent teaching of nonviolence by the Jains, by the Vaishnavas, but his interpretation of that was not so traditional. You know, 
the Buddha, for example, preaches nonviolence as one of his fundamental five precepts. But, you know, he was consulted regularly in his life by kings about how to conduct certain campaigns, you know, how to conquer the next state. He even gave advice for that kind of questions. And he never says to a king leading an army to the battlefield, hey, you, you must stop, you must practice Ahinsa. No war here. He never says that. You see, Ahinsa is a rule to be practiced by the monks or by people with that kind of aspiration. But, you know, to conduct worldly affairs, he doesn't interfere. And um, so the notion of mixing Ahinsa nonviolence into day-to-day uh, -day politics, that's peculiarly Gandhi. So you see, Hindus have a point when they reject that. In fact, um, Gandhi advised the Jews in the Second World War to simply meekly go to the slaughterhouse and get slaughtered, because that would be a moral victory over the Nazis. Oh, that's nonsense. You know, like Sri Aurobindo said, I think these people are a little cracked. That's what he said about the great Mahatma Gandhi. Um, so there, of course, uh, the ordinary worldly methods, which sometimes imply the use of violence, uh, should be operative. And so most Hindus think like that. Indeed, you see his advice to the Jews was lampooned by, in India by both the communists and the Hindu nationalists, and I think rightly so. Um, however, Gandhi was murdered because of his role in the creation of Pakistan. And I think that role was quite negative. Um, he misled the Hindus into thinking that Pakistan would not come about. So the million or so people killed in Lahore and Mortal and thereabouts in, in West Pakistan um, were very often Hindus who did see partition as a real threat, but were reassured by Gandhi that partition would not happen, that he would prevent it over his dead body. And that's what he literally said, over my dead body. And yet he gave in. In June 47, he accepted partition. And so all these people were suddenly prisoners, hostages. And so a million or so people who would have fled were now hostages and were uh, hopeless uh, victims of partition violence. So I think Gandhi has something to answer for. Also, there was a... Um, and um, a proposal originating from uh, Dr. Amberka to have an exchange of population. Shyam Prasad Mukherjee, the Hindu leader, went to Gandhi to remind him, you know, there is an alternative, or at least a way to, to sweeten partition to make it less harmful, which is to have an exchange of population. It should have saved a lot of people after independence all the communal riots that have taken place in India, in Pakistan, in Bangladesh, 
would not have happened. Now, Gandhi put his foot down and he said quite mendaciously, oh, no, no, this, this has nothing to do with religion. This is a territorial nationalism, which it was not. Even the borders of Pakistan at that time were not fixed yet. So there too, you see, his policies are ultimately the cause of a lot of suffering. And, you know, for somebody who goes down in history books as the apostle of nonviolence, I think his record is pretty violent. However, to call him the father of Pakistan, as Naturam Gotse did, that is not accurate. You see, it's the Muslim community that started the movement for Pakistan, not the British, not Mahatma Gandhi, not Jawaharlal Nehru. That's a Muslim initiative. And so then one party after another, one Congress leader after another fell in line, you know, saw that, well, it's, it's not feasible to prevent partition. And um, so that's also what Gandhi did. Um, then he only did that because people all around him were doing it. You see, he was not better than the average Hindu and not worse. You know, the, the sins of Mahatma Gandhi are, I'm afraid to say, and here I'm quoting Sitaram Goel, are the failings of Hindu society. And, you know, therefore, to kill Gandhi was a mistake. It was also a strategic mistake. <clears throat> I mean, it was a moral mistake that I guess we can agree on. It was also a great strategic mistake because the Hindu movement at the time had the women in sales. You see, the, the secularists had proven their incompetence in preventing or, if necessary, in humanizing the partition. So the Hindus were the, the Hindu nationalists were the alternative. Now, he jeopardized that development by the murder. Immediately, the Inu Mahasabha and the RSS were in the dock. Saffron became a dirty coat. And so for decades, the upcoming uh, BJS, BJP has suffered because of this. What is even worse is that their self-understanding, their understanding of the Hindu cause has greatly been influenced by secularism precisely because they were afraid to affirm the Hindu identity. And so developments like the one I just mentioned of uh, Mohan Bhagwat now saying every Indian is a Hindu. Well, they are ultimately to a very large extent consequences of that murder. You know, in that sense, it, it, it sends its waves to even the present. Uh, okay, thank you, Dr. Els, for uh, answering these questions with such a sharp uh, intellect and with clarity. I had a few more questions to be asked, but now, since we are running short of time, so I would like to thank uh, Indica Academy and Srinivasi for this opportunity to interview Dr. Els. Srinivasi. Thank you, Ashutoshi. I really enjoyed uh, uh, the session, especially 
the short statements that you would uh, add, you know, before the question, you know, which sets the context. I really enjoyed this. Mm -hmm. I really enjoyed uh, Conrad's uh, answers as well. As usual, he's crisp, straightforward, and you know, honest uh, about his opinions. And mm -hmm. thank you very much.